You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and how to create a vibrant and thriving home staging business. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 160. Hey guys, as you know, 17 Hats was our main sponsor at SagerCon 2021. We recommend 17 Hats because it was a critical part of our home staging business and free us up from lots of paperwork, admin, and chasing clients with emails so that we can focus on what we love to do, which is staging. If you're like us, you probably didn't go into the business for the paperwork. You know, all those invoices, emails, reminders, to-dos, and just the incessant chasing after client for paperwork. So that's where 17 Hats comes in for us. It's like you cloned yourself. Their all-in-one platform automates your staging business. 17 Hats handles the tedious stuff like payment reminders, capturing leads, proposal, invoicing, and even scheduling. We actually created a resource guide for you on our site. Just go to stagerumor.com slash 17 Hats and find out more about how we use 17 Hats in our home staging business. If you're a current 17 Hats user, we would love to hear about your story too. You can submit your 17 Hats story on our site at stagerumor.com slash 17 Hats. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So just a quick reminder, we got a new community talk this month today, actually, on August 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ashley from House Candy Home Staging, she's one of the finalists from this year's International Home Staging Awards. She's going to walk us through her project and also her process of staging this property. So it's going to be a Zoom presentation, essentially, but she's going to show us the before and after and then also her process. Obviously, if you attend live, you can ask questions as well. And I know if you usually listen to the podcast a few days after the published date, you may have missed this event already. But don't worry, you can always catch a replay for free in our free online lounge. Just log into our online community lounge at sagemore.school. If you are already a student, this is the same platform we use to host our courses and content. If you haven't registered for a free account yet, you can also do so for free by going to sagemore.school. Once you sign up for the account, just go to the menu bar on your left-hand side, click Classroom, then you will find the private classroom with all the past community talks as well. Because now we switch over to the bi-monthly publishing schedule for the podcast. If you want to make sure that you keep up with all what's happening at the school, you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can do so by going to our website at sagemore.com. And when you scroll down to the bottom, you will see an email subscription box. Just pop your email and that's it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Sage for More, where we'll announce all the latest events and updates, plus tips and tricks in running your home staging business. We are also going to have an open house next month for our certification program. So we're going to be doing live Q&A sessions, but also some informational educational sessions as well. So if you're interested in joining us for the full day's festivity, just sign up at sagemore.com slash open house. Today, I have a very special guest on the podcast. I first met Dara in yoga when we were both in our 20s, and we actually got reconnected a few years ago because she was about to start her own staging company. So she reached out for advice. I'm just thrilled to have her on the show today to talk about her experience, not only as a stylist, she used to be a stylist for Parry Barn and also many other major brands in the States as well, and international brands too. But now her home staging company has really come together and is very successful. Her staging company, Paloma Home, is an interior design and staging studio led by designer, stylist, and creative Dara Donovan. 
who has spent her entire career bringing a California sensibility of aesthetic into the modern home. The culture of Los Angeles may be Dara's original source of inspiration, but beyond her hometown, she draws upon the long, rich history of international fine art and design with a special affinity for the Mediterranean, Japan, Scandinavia, and also the American Southwest. The reason why I also want Dara on the show today is because she is someone who has a really distinctive point of view. And I think you can tell that from her description of her company. And I think for Sager, especially if you are a Sager who works in a very competitive market, it really is very important that you need to show the differentiation. And oftentimes I find that, especially I think when you're new in your career, it's still very difficult to distill that for your own staging business and your style when it comes to staging. Dara obviously has a lot of training in that aspect because she has to really follow the brief, but also respect what her client has been doing, right? For their branding and their aesthetic and things like that. So this is why I think it's really important to have someone like Dara on the show, but also to talk about her experience as a stylist, because I know a lot of times stagers get approached for a photo styling type of projects and they actually don't know how to charge properly. So we talk a little bit about that as well. All right, so I'm looking forward to hear what you think about the show. As usual, we have all the links in the show notes. You can find out more about Dara and her company in the show notes, as well as all the links mentioned earlier. And let's start the show. Hi, Dara, welcome to the show. So before we get started today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also your staging business? Hi, Cindy. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'm Dara. I own Paloma Home Studio. It's a boutique staging company based in Oakland, California. And we're only about two and a half years old, actually. We just launched about two months before the pandemic. And it's been pretty much gangbusters since we started. We kind of focus around more of a boutique experience. We try to approach the staging process from more of a design perspective, kind of like a mini design project. That was kind of my goal at the outset. And we've had a pretty good response to that. So yeah, it's been a journey (laughs) through the pandemic. And now on the other side, (laughs) it's a very small team. It's, you know, I'm the founder. And then we have about six rotating stylists that we work with and then a moving crew. So it's a really small team. It's a very small business boutique experience. And my goal is to kind of keep it that way as we grow and evolve. So yeah. I love that. Tell us a little bit about building a business during the pandemic. That must be great. It's a great question. (laughs) Having never gone through a pandemic before in this lifetime, (laughs) it was a journey on a lot of levels. You know, I think that one of the benefits of living in the Bay Area is that the housing market is pretty consistently busy and kind of crazy in general. But having not known what the housing market really was like before the pandemic, it was crazy. I mean, I had a lot of realtors just telling me it's not normally like this. And (laughs) I mean, houses were flying off the market. Literally, I mean, I actually staged a house in San Francisco. As we were moving in, I got a call from the realtor and he was like, the house already sold. So... It had sold as we were moving in the furniture to stage the property. So it just, things were flying off the shelves so crazy and so quickly. And for so much more over asking, it did kind of spoil me a little bit in a lot of ways because I just got used to that rapid pace. 
And also the fact that people were kind of willing to spend a lot of money on staging in general. And definitely the pandemic threw a couple wrenches into the whole just moving in and out and masks and maintaining a crew and making sure that everyone was up to the health codes and all the constant changes that were happening. That was kind of stressful. But, you know, somehow we navigated it. I think it actually kind of set us up in a way that now it just feels a little bit easier. I think just because things were so intense for the first two years, now it just feels like, okay, in retrospect, we survived. We survived that. (laughs) What's the market like now, now that we are pretty much out of pandemic or semi out of pandemic? Semi out of pandemic, right? I know. Are we out? I don't know what's happening. It's definitely changing, I would say. I actually just talked to a realtor this morning. Just I was kind of like, what is happening with the market? July was pretty slow, but July is always kind of slow just because summer tends to be the less popular time to list properties. But my biggest takeaway from the change, at least from a few months ago, spring was just still really, really busy. The biggest takeaway I would say is that houses are sitting longer. So the really amazing houses sell immediately still because it is the Bay Area and people still have a lot of money. But the ones that have quirks are less than ideal in certain ways. Those are sitting significantly longer than before. Whereas we could stage a house that we walked in, we were like, oh, I don't know, is this going to be sitting here for the next 60 days? Who knows? But they would just sell within a week or two. So that's changed for sure. And we've had to rework the contract because of that just a little bit, just because people were getting kind of nervous about... We had a 45-day contract for when we were really, really busy. We had a 45-day contract for the staging. So we recently actually just changed it back to 60 days, which is what it was in the beginning, which is pretty, I think, standard. It's yeah. pretty fascinating. So what is significantly longer now? What would you say? I mean, honestly, up until June, I don't think we had a house... I'm trying to think. I don't think we've ever had a house that didn't sell. It just everything sold, no matter what. June was really when I felt like things, it was almost felt overnight. May was crazy, which the spring, it's always a little crazy. But June was when I really felt like, oh, I'm feeling what everyone has been talking about for the last two months. I'm actually, the business I think was feeling a little bit. It was still busy enough not to freak out, you know? And again, it is still the Bay Area. And I do feel like, we're lucky in that we're in a really good market just in terms of real estate in general. But we had a condo that actually didn't sell. So 60 days into the contract. So they're going to take it off the market and then relist it, I think. Probably in the fall, September, when things kind of pick up again. Summer's weird anyway. I mean, that was the one season, I think, aside from like December, where I really felt like, you know, you have to, as a stager, you just have to ride the waves. (laughs) It's just part of it. Yeah. I know. It reminds me when we were doing yoga teacher training for yes. who don't know, actually, probably no one knows listening. Me and Dara met almost 20 years ago, a yoga teacher training in San Francisco. Yes. And I think that's a, such a San Francisco thing. Because I remember Onion had this article about how one out of 10 women have a yoga teacher <laughs> in San Francisco. I mean, it's a satire, but I'm like, that's probably pretty accurate. I think that's pretty accurate, if not underestimating. (laughs) Yeah, I think, especially when we did it, I feel like yoga was such a big... It was kind of the new... Everybody was doing it. Yoga was... Yeah, it was 2004, right? It was the big thing in San Francisco. Everyone is doing a yoga teacher training or thinking about doing yoga teacher training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe just the crowd we hang out 
Yeah. Maybe it was our crowd. Although I had friends in LA and everywhere that were like, that was the, I just think that was when yoga really became, it was a trend in a lot of ways. And I think it stuck around because it's yoga and it's amazing, but everybody was doing it. Everybody was obsessed with yoga culture. And there were all these, it was a looking back. It's crazy. It was time. after yeah. that Madonna album, right? Ray of light. Yes. Super into yoga. And then this thing yeah. is sweeping everywhere. Yeah. And I remember we went out to dinner somewhere yeah. in the mission, was it? And then you I think we mentioned, yeah, guys. yeah. Yeah. And then you were mentioning that you just got this random gig uh-huh. being assistant at Pari Barn. Yeah, that's so funny. That's right when that happened. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That was that was the start of it. The start of my styling career was actually right around that time when I stopped doing yoga. So funny. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I remember you were telling me about how you went down to LA and then Santa Cruz for shoots Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It just sounds like a really interesting experience. So yeah, when I ended that teacher training, I had a friend from college who, I mean, literally it was as simple as, I think he was working at... He was working at the stud in San Francisco, which for the listeners that don't know, is a very iconic gay bar in San Francisco. And he had a friend come in. I don't know. They somehow connected and he ended up being, he was a stylist for Pottery Barn, the catalog. So they somehow got connected. And then my friend, Ryan, we were having a conversation about just like, what are we doing? We're out of college. I don't know. And he was like, you know... I'm doing this side gig thing, assisting stylists on these photo shoots. And he was like, you should, I think you'd be really good at it. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And literally he just threw me some names of different art directors and different people that I should connect with. And I just sent out like a blanket email to everybody. And one of the art directors from Pottery Barn got back to me pretty much immediately. And she was like, actually, yes, we have a shoot in Santa Barbara. We're short an assistant. Would you want to come down? And I was like, absolutely. I want to come down. (laughs) It felt very posh. Hotel was paid for, flights were paid for, everything was taken care of. And I really didn't know what I was doing or what I was even getting into at the time. But I showed up on set, this beautiful, amazing house in Montecito. And there was a full catered breakfast. (laughs) You know, it just felt like very glamorous, I guess is the right word. And what I quickly learned is that the people that were on the crew and the people that I were working with were my people. It very much felt like this is the right fit for me. It's a lot of creative people from different industries, different walks of life. We're all working together as a team to make these beautiful pictures. So after that shoot, that shoot was a week long. I remember I went back to San Francisco and I was like, this is what I want to do. It's so funny that you remember that conversation though. (laughs) Seems like an eternity ago. But yeah, I mean, from there, I just, I really pretty much built my styling career off of that one shoot. Pretty much. I decided I'm going to do this and hustled, just made as many connections as I possibly could with lots of different people, photographers and stylists and art directors. And Pottery Barn was really the foundation for all of that. It was the first client that I ever worked with and they were consistently loyal. I worked with them up until the end of my styling career, pretty much. And how did you get into staging after styling? Oh, staging. I had... (laughs) That's a great question. So I had... Actually, there is another stylist who started a staging company. And he actually lives in Forestville, Russian River area. 
Oh, we can talk about this at a later time, but right. yeah, no, you probably know him. You probably know him actually. And the styling community is very small, actually. Even New York, LA, SF, like it's a very small community of people. Everyone knows each other. And I think same thing with the staging company. And there is some crossover. The staging business is similar to styling in that sense. I think it's a small community. People talk, people know each other. And I do think there's some crossover there because they are really, really similar paths in a lot of ways. I think the big differentiation is that staging, you really have to... You're a business owner in every sense of the word. And so running the business is different than being self-employed and being a freelancer. Freelance versus business owner is actually two very different things, which I didn't learn until I was in it. But it was really an experiment. I mean, I think I had reached a point in my styling career where I was just done. I was traveling. I was living in LA, traveling almost every other week, which in your 20s and 30s is amazing. You're like so excited. I mean, I love traveling. Don't get me wrong. Still love traveling. But when it's your job, it starts to feel exhausting. So I was kind of at the end of my rope with styling. I was just feeling kind of uninspired. I was feeling... I was just kind of done. The interesting jobs weren't lighting me up anymore. I wasn't feeling just that motive. You really have to hustle. You have to feel that hustle and the motivation to hustle, I think, with styling. And I just wasn't feeling that anymore. So, you know, just kind of brainstorming with friends. What is a business that I could create where I'm still able to be super creative, but I have a little bit more control over my day? That's another thing with styling. I think you're on set for anywhere from eight hours to 14 hours a day. And you have pretty much no agency over when your day is over. A lot of it's just dependent on how the day goes and what the art director says and what the needs of the shot list are. And that started to just kind of wear on me. And I wanted a little bit more control over my day and be able to wake up in the morning and say like, I want to exercise or go for a walk or chat with a friend and styling. It was very hard to do that. And the busier you got, the less time you actually had to take care of your real life, doctor's appointments and things like that. So I think I was kind of just brainstorming. I thought about starting an event company with a friend (laughs) two months before the pandemic, which thank God we didn't do that. And another idea that I had was staging. And I had kind of helped a friend do a couple small staging jobs. I knew people in LA that ran staging businesses, just sort of acquaintances or friends of friends. And so I was kind of like gathering intel, just trying to figure out what is the staging world and what does that look like? And what do your days look like? And how crazy is it? And then coincidentally, I was on a shoot in New Hampshire and I met the producer and we were just chatting and I was telling her that I was thinking about starting a staging company and just as an experiment, she's like, oh, you should connect with this realtor friend of mine who lives in Rockridge. And I think she'd be, you know, you should chat with her, get coffee with her, whatever, get her ideas. So I followed up with her when I got back from the shoot and we ended up having a four hour coffee date <laughs> and she was amazing. She gave me so much information. Turns out she's this very high stakes Oakland realtor who has been in the business for a really long time. And so she gave me some pretty amazing advice just to start with the outset. And then a few weeks later, actually ended up hiring me for the first staging job that I ever did. I had kind of already created a website using a couple styling images and just trying to sort of piece it together. It was really scrappy. I mean, everything was really scrappy in the beginning. I made these business cards on Canva, (laughs) just trying to not invest too much money in the business before knowing what it even was about, really. 
But I would say I really approached it as an experiment, just trying to see whether it really fit for me. So I started that first job, happened incredibly stressful. I used all of the money from the deposit just to buy inventory essentially. And then I had a couple props just from my styling world. And I pulled stuff from my house, (laughs) of course, as you you all do (laughs) in the beginning. And yeah, I mean, it was really scrappy. It turned out well. And I realized that I was like, okay, this is similar to styling. The pace was similar. It was chaotic enough to keep me interested. But 5.30, I was like, okay, I think we're done for the day. We can come back in the morning. And that felt really good just to kind of have <laughs> more control over when we start and when we finish. And later I learned that control is kind of an illusion with staging because there's a lot of things you can't control. But <laughs> but that's later. I learned that. But that was the first job. And I literally, from there, just every day sort of chipped away at it and built and built the company that we are now. I will say the most beneficial thing that I've learned with building this is just how important networking is and how important building your community is because that's really how I've been able to build this whole thing. And a lot of that comes from like old styling contacts and then just connections and from a connection is another connection and then it just snowballs. And that's been really the bulk of of how I've been able to create Paloma. That's amazing. I love it. I think that is a perfect advice. And I think also having that selling background. Because I think the industry, like you said, there's a lot of parallel, but I think for the styling industry on photo shoots, in a way, it feels like a very old industry that almost there's a lot of unspoken rules. When I first got on set and started working, it was explained to me that it's a bit like a totem pole, right? Mm. Even with different types of stylists, you have a hierarchy. Photographer is always the highest. Well, all of them client, obviously, but on set, all the people who are working, the crew, photographer will be the top. And depending on what type of shoot it is, different stylists have different area on the totem pole that they're on. Yeah. When you're staging, I think you do really have that autonomy in a way it's a lot like a dictatorship. I mean, there's a certain mm-hmm. extent that the client can be like, I want this, I want that. Oh, but yeah. at the end of the day, you're just like, well, we're actually doing this for the buyer. So it's really irrelevant of what you want as a seller. Sometimes with the real estate agent, I do listen to what I want because if it makes yeah. sense, obviously we'll do it. But if it doesn't make sense, I will stand yeah. my ground, but professionally. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the thing. You do have more a sense of, I think, who you are and what you can do on the staging side. This is your own business where yeah. on the photo side, it's basically anything go, whatever our director wants. That's really. exactly right. That was the, another big thing is I just, I have issues with authority to begin with. I always have. I like to do my own thing. I just always have. That's who I am. That's always how I've been. So I think, I've just been gradually working more towards building something that I'm the boss. And I think that knowing who you are is such an important part of your career path because what works for one person doesn't work for for another. And I know lots of stylists that are fine, you know, taking direction from the art directors, but a lot of times what I end up finding is that I was executing someone else's vision. And that's fine, but I just didn't feel like I was really involved in the creative part of that. It just kind of eats away at your creativity when you're constantly executing the vision of another brand. Whereas with staging, it really has allowed me to kind of build my own brand. And really, it's my vision 100%, even though you have to, of course, deal with clients and requests and all of that as well. 
Yeah. I remember when I was assisting prop sellers and a lot of it, because everyone answers to someone, right? Exactly. Even our director. Always. Always. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so we'll get these brief from Pinterest and mm-hmm. then you will just end up sourcing whatever's already on the photograph. Yes. And it's usually a photograph that the client gives to them, right? So it's essentially mm-hmm. regurgitating the same thing over and over again. So you're actually, there's no creative involved. You're just buying the same thing because- yep. We all have to answer to someone and the easiest thing would be just give them exactly what they have asked for. Yeah. Maybe totally. a couple more options for them to choose so they feel that they have choice. But choice. Lots of at the end of the day, it. it's really yeah. the client brief and our director, what they decide. And so, Exactly. Yeah. But what I like about the photo industry is that the structure of it is very set. Yeah. So you know exactly pricing is essentially non-negotiable. This is my day rate. Mm-hmm. There's no really leeway to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been on set where the client was, well, oh, I don't want to pay overtime. And then you're just like, well, but contract. Oh, so labor yeah. law. <laughs> right? Days. I know. They have to have overtime. <laughs> and that's not so staging. We get kind of nickel and dime every step of the way, even though there's yeah. so much creative involved. And I think... A lot of agents still treat us like glorified movers, unfortunately, but we do much more than that. We do. We do a lot more than that. And a lot more goes into it. I think a lot of times they just aren't thinking about how much goes into it because they're thinking about, you know, what their experience is. Those are the realtors that I tend not to like to work with anyway, because if they're not thinking about how hard you're working and what you bring to the table, then they're not really valuing you and your offering. So what I've tried to do is... And with every new client, I try to do this. Is this someone that I want to build a relationship with? And the good ones, I try to just cater to them as much as I possibly can, just because I want to work with them in the future. And the ones that aren't so great to work with, obviously, I'm still going to work hard and bring my best foot forward. But I also just feel like you have to weed out the bad apples. Otherwise, as a stager, you're going to go insane. But yeah, like you said, with the pricing, we constantly get, we constantly get requests for negotiation with pricing. And that's probably never going to go away. No, in real estate, I kind of think... So to give listeners a bit of context. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. So what exactly does a photo stylist do? Because, you know, we talk about different discipline, right? There's wardrobe, there's food, and even within prop, there's soft goods, there's Mm -hmm. tabletop, there is flat lay, right? And then also Mm -hmm. soft goods too. Yes. I mean, there's tons of niche styling jobs. So basically a photo stylist is... What's the best way to describe it? It's pretty much you are working in tandem with generally with the photographer or the director to execute a narrative of a brand. So you're there, you're brought in essentially to work as a team. There's usually a crew involved. It's not just the photographer, but although I have worked on shoots where it's just me and the photographer... And you work with them to create a vignette or a scenario in which you're generally selling a product or selling a story of some kind. I always like to think of it as a narrative because it actually helps me do the creative part and kind of build the story around what we're trying to say in the picture. And that's kind of how I approach it. And I actually approach staging the same way. I like to build a narrative. I like to build a story of like who lives here. You know, what does this tablecloth say about? the person who lives here is going to buy this house. It helps me to kind of think about things that way. But I think styling really is that. It's building a story with objects to sell something, to tell a story and to create 
a mood essentially. So with Pottery Barn, you're obviously selling furniture. So we created these elaborate sets and would bring in all this Pottery Barn merchandise. And we'd use props from different sources to build out the scenario and make it feel real. And that's pretty much what you're doing anytime you're styling on set is you're building a story, working with a client. Every client's different. Every client has different needs. Every client has different requests. And the nice thing about styling is that every week is different. So one week you could be selling a car, the next you could be selling, you know, wine. And it's two very different experiences and the crew is totally different. And for someone who does who gets bored easily, like I do, I think in a lot of ways that was what kept me engaged with styling is that it was exciting. It was different all the time. You'd meet tons of new people all the time and travel to new places. And when you get a really, really creative job where you're allowed to really express your creativity, it feels really exciting. But generally, yeah, that's kind of the overview. And like you said, there's a lot of different niche paths you can take. There's food styling, soft goods, flat lays, cosmetic styling is one that I've noticed recently as exploding. I think because if you're able to, it's very hard to do. I've tried. It's it's not my, it's not my uh, niche at all. (laughs) You have to be like an artist. It's so detailed. There's lots of different paths you can take. And I think the one nice thing about being a niche stylist is that you, if you can really build a name for yourself within that niche, then you get hired all the time. There's a lot of stylists nowadays, a lot of people that are calling themselves stylists. Now you can be an Instagram stylist. You can be so many things. But when I started, when I started, I literally, it was so old school. Like you said, it's, you know, a lot of these New York old school stylists have been doing it since the late 80s, Polaroids. Yeah. And they shot with large format cameras. Totally. And yeah, very you know, different. Like Polaroids and stuff like that, where they have actually go back into a dark room. So I've heard stories yeah. how yeah. assistants or longtime assistants who've been doing it for decades. Yeah, I had to run the film back to the dark room at 11 o'clock at night. And then we're there all night to wait for the film to be processed. I'm just... You're like, what? I would I know. die. Yeah. <laughs> like, no amount no. of overtime will make that work for me. Totally. I mean, to be sad fact, but I when I started assisting, we were still shooting Polaroid. So there would be like Polaroids littered all over the ground. We were just talking about this when I was right... I started styling right after I finished yoga back in 2004. And that was right when they transitioned to digital. So they were still shooting Polaroid and then digital came on and there were some old school photographers who were like, I don't like this new medium. (laughs) You know, what is this? And little did they know it meant that we could be way more efficient and get way more shots and all of that. And, but also it also snowballed into the client presenting you with 50 shots. Can you get this done? Now when you were shooting Polaroid, you could literally shoot maybe one or two setups a week because it was just took so much longer to do all of that. Yeah, with film, you have to be super precise with your lighting and with your focal length and then also depth of field and all that. It it really is the science-y part of the photography, not digital. And I see that on the photo industry as well, what we see in staging. Because, I mean, even you get low ball on photo Uh shoots, right? Even though it's in the industry. But I think like you said, there's all this new stuff coming in. Instagram Mm -hmm. style. When you said that, I'm like, what is that? Yeah, Totally. You know, and that's great. Express your creativity, however, whatever your medium is, that's awesome. It's just different because I think there was a lot of vetting when I started and a lot of... It was all just based on network and who do you know? Do you know this stylist? And now it's just really... You can create your brand in so many different ways now, which is wonderful. But it also just means there's more competition too. 
Yeah. The threshold to enter is much lower now, I think both yeah. for full selling, but also staging as well. I mean, staging has always been an industry that is fairly unregulated. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So when you first started, how did you figure out all this stuff? Oh my gosh. I mean, pricing alone is very different, right? I mean, yeah. do you want to give people an idea in terms of what photo selling makes? Yeah. So it can range depending on the client. I would say the range is... I mean, assistants generally make somewhere between 250 to 500 a day. That's an assistant rate generally. But styling, you can make anywhere from 600 to $3,000 a day. I mean, if not more, depending... If you're like on some crazy commercial shoot, you could you can make more than that. I never got to that point because <laughs> that's a commitment and you have to know the right network. And like you said, there's a lot of niche things happening in the photo world and video world. So... I was more focused on where I liked to work was a lot of catalog stuff. It was consistent. They would always book you constantly, you know, in advance, you could plan out your year a little bit based on, you know, when you were booked for those shoots. But I did do some commercial stuff when I was living in LA and the rates were always great, really good rates, but you were also on set for like 14 hours a day. So it's a trade-off. That's the one thing about styling is like, yes, you're making a great day rate, but you're also trading so much of your time. So it's really kind of, for me, goes against the whole passive income idea of just, there's a massive trade-off. And the best that can happen with styling is that you're booked every day, right? So there's a cap really for how much you can even make with that. To me, that just felt limiting in some ways as a long game. So glad I did it for so many years. But yeah, I mean, the, the money is good. It's It's good money but you're so tired. <laughs> Money is fantastic. Yeah. Exhausting. Yeah. Like it's yeah. exhausted. That's the thing too. I think for me, when I first got into it, it was really exciting, right? Because you get to go to all these cool locations and catered lunch and breakfast or whatever, catered dinner sometimes. Yeah. But you're working your butt off. And sometimes yeah. at the end of the day, when you get home, you're just like, I can't even watch television. Like I, I don't have any comprehension of what's coming in. Yeah, uh, And then the next day, call time, it's at 8 or 7. And you have yeah. to get up, do it all over again on a 10-hour day. Totally. And it can be exhausting. And so, yeah. so, yeah, it's insane. Yeah. And then so one of the things I noticed too, a lot of producers now are reaching out to stagers because stagers don't know how photo people are charging. So they will come in with a flat fee of a couple thousand dollars for a week shoot. And producers will be like, that is great because usually they're paying salads, you know, three grand a day or yeah. at, at least a minimum one grand a day, right? So, like, yeah. a week shoot is five grand to 10,000. Where stranger comes in, I'll do it for $2,000. Yeah, no, no. I mean, you're, you're selling yourself short if you're going to do that for $2,000. I'll tell you that right now. But yeah, I mean, I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I have not heard of that, but my husband's a producer. I don't know if you knew that, Cindy, but yeah. So he, it's all about, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? Though, you know that when you hire someone for less, you're probably not going to get the quality maybe that you'd get with someone who's going to charge a little bit more than that. If a client approached me and asked me for that, I think I would, there just would already be baked in an expectation of, okay, what are you really wanting here? Because in the old days they would fly people out and be happy to pay an exorbitant day rate because they knew they were getting some really talented person from New York or LA. And 
I think now that has changed with the amount of people that are willing to work for free to build their book or which we've all done. You have to do that to some degree, but that's interesting. So have people approached you, Cindy, about that? Is that something that you've been approached about or you just heard that? I have been approached uh, when I was staging, but at the time, but I was already a prop assistant. So I knew what the rate were. Yeah. So I can come in as a junior stylist rate, which is hovering around a thousand, right? At the time. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was fair. And that's the thing. I think that's the interesting thing. It's that when you don't know photo industry and you're getting on at a much cheaper rate, right? Like Mm -hmm. we just talked about. Yeah. You don't really know exactly what the proper expectation is or even etiquette on set. Yeah. So that could be somewhat challenging. But I've heard stagers have done it for TV producing, for example. The some TV shows they shoot seasonally in the market like Seattle, for example, or Vancouver. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they're just flying in for a couple months. And then so they just want to work with a local stager using their furnishing mm-hmm. and then basically just leave. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it makes sense for the inventory, I guess, because obviously we have a, as stagers, we have a lot of inventory and a lot of, we're like a prop, we're like a mini prop house, basically. Yeah. Um, I used to rent two sets. Yeah. Which was great because you rent, well, at the time, a week, it's 25% of retail, right? Mm -hmm. We can never get pricing like that when you're doing staging packages. It's true. I know. I've rented only. I've only rented to friends, honest other stylist friends who will come into the warehouse and just like pull stuff. And I'm like, yeah, take it, it's fine. But I think that's actually a really smart revenue stream. If you live in an industry, like a, in a market where there's shoots going on, like New York or LA or San Francisco, or even like you said, Seattle or Vancouver, that actually is a really smart way to make income. That you don't have to do anything other than people coming in and pulling from your inventory. Yeah, especially things like beds, you know, mattresses. How are you going to rent a mattress? Right. Oh, totally. I know. I mean, if you live in LA, there's a million prop houses there, but they're all so, they're again, they're very old school and you have to allow, you know, mountains of paperwork before you can even get out the door and rent anything there. So I think staging is probably a really easy way for that, for people to access production designers and stuff. But to circle back to what you were talking about, I think, I don't know. That's just fascinating. Because like you said, there is a very, very different etiquette on set that is very specific, actually, now that we're talking about it. Just think how to <laughs> deal with a C-stand, how to set up a C-stand. If, if you're a stager, you probably don't know how to do that. Or who eats first? Like just these weird kind of ingrained <laughs> things oh my God, that you who eat first. Honestly, toxic <laughs> environment to work in. Now we're talking about it. <laughs> I remember I worked for a stylist that was working in New York and she was very insistent that we all sat down for lunch. Uh I was like, that is never unheard of. I've never at the time worked on a shoot where the stylist was like, I insist you take a proper lunch break. Yeah. And you yeah. eat at least for half an hour. I'm like, oh, yeah. what? Yeah. Usually we're just yeah. inhaling while we're just yeah, doing other stuff. things. Yeah, exactly. No, it's very, and depending on who you're working with and who the crew is, that's another thing. It's some people are really uptight about that. Like I've had stylists, art directors, photographers who are like, we do have to all eat as a crew. You need to sit at the every, what's expected that we all are eating together as a crew, which to me, sometimes after being on set for 12 hours a day, talking to people all day long, the last thing I want to do is sit down and eat with them. I need a minute to just <laughs> eat by myself in the corner because I need to reset. It's been so much. But yeah, it's fascinating. And I think in that sense, 
there is a lot of differences there right staging it's a very small crew and it's just your people whereas when you're on set there could be hundreds of people that you're working with so the expectations totally different the etiquette is totally different and i would imagine that producers would know that so that's just crazy that they're trying to lowball that's not good yeah. yeah. I mean, I think some clients are crazy. I remember I was on yes. set once and then it was five minutes to five o'clock. And all of a sudden the client's like, I don't want to pay overtime. We're in the middle of national park and you didn't want me to drive. So I, I rode in your car. How am I supposed oh, to get home? Oh my God. And luckily at the time I was on the roster for agency. So I emailed the agent oh, and she's in New York. Good. She immediately emailed me back. She's like, that is a violation of the contract. I will email them right now. Good. Thank God you had an agent at that time because I've had agents before, but when I didn't wasn't wrapped by an agent, you it's you have to deal with it directly. And it's really hard to deal with those clients sometimes, especially the ones that are expecting you. There's just a lot of demands that go into it, I think. And from a lot of different directions. The photographer could be telling you one thing and the art director is telling you something totally different. And you're like, I don't know who I'm supposed to be catering to here. It's tough. It's it's a lot. <laughs> I think that really prepare you for staging now, isn't it? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so going back to that original question, yeah. like how did you figure it all out in the beginning, yeah. especially with charging? Judging from your work, you really work on this more refined kind of curated look. So it's a higher yeah. end client as well. So how did yeah. you figure out all this stuff in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, it was a process. The first year was so crazy. There were so many things I didn't know. But the the wonderful thing about styling is that every week you show up to work, you have to figure it out pretty much from the ground up. If it's a new client, if it's a new project, you're figuring it out. That ability to adapt, I really think, trained me so well for staging. Because even in a scenario where I don't still to this day don't know exactly what the proper response is or what the proper action is. I think the the level of adaptability that I've learned over time has really helped me throughout to create this business. I didn't have a lot to pull from. I mean, I reached out to, you know, my realtor friend of a friend was a huge help. I mean, she, I would say that was maybe the most helpful conversation. Gathering intel from a realtor, I can't think of a more helpful resource because they're really going to give you that inside scoop to what they're thinking about and what their perspective is. I reached out to my friend who is a stylist who, you know, was kind of dabbling. He gave me some helpful tips. He basically was like, get ready to not have any money for the next three years. So I was like, great, super exciting. (laughs) He was just more of coming from a more realist perspective. I think I was about to launch the company and I think he was just be aware that the level of inventory that you're going to need is pretty substantial. After the first stage, I immediately understood what he was talking about. It's like, you can never have enough stuff. But again, not to parallel styling again, but that is exactly how you feel as a pop stylist. You can never have too many options. It's completely endless. It's an endless bottomless pit of options that you you have to kind of be pulling from. So at the end of the day, you sort of have to be okay with what you have and try to curate the hell out of it, you know? (laughs) And that's kind of what I did. So I just pulled from the resources that I had at the time. And as the company grew and as I got more staging jobs, 
I would talk to other realtors and that would build on that. I, to be honest, I feel like I just kind of made it up as I went along, which I, I hate to say that, but it's worked for me. I really think you have, especially in business, you have to trust who you are and what your strengths are and just kind of lean into that as much as you possibly can, because that's going to guide you and that's going to create the business that actually works for you as a person, as opposed to maybe what works for someone else might not work for you. That's true for me. And I think I've trusted that and it's worked. It's, it's worked for me. So. I think that is perfect advice. But I have to say, when I first met you yes. years ago, or a little less than 20 years ago, I always feel like you have a very distinctive point of view. You were always very, you have your own way. It's just very, I'm going to say, it's just, you're always very styling. I remember I went to your apartment, the way you put your house together, it was very consistent, the way you dress, the way you yeah. style your own home. Yeah. And even now, when I look at your website, your work, your staging work, but also your styling work as well, you always has a very strong point of view. Um, and I think that is important because I think when clients are hiring, they're really hiring that consistency, right? They look at yeah. your website, they want that. They want yeah. that atmosphere, that ambiance, whatever you're curating for them. Totally. So how did you figure out what exactly is your signature look when it comes to your styling work? Yeah. I mean, I I appreciate that comment. I mean, I think that what has worked for us as a company, not to have too much of a segue here, but I think what's really worked for us and created as much business as we have is having a point of view. I think a lot of stagers, at least when I go out in the world of staging and kind of look at what other people are doing, they don't seem to have a really strong aesthetic point of view. And I know that everybody has everybody has personal style. It's all subjective. It's all based on what you like. And that's everyone's personal style. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. But I think having a point of view is kind of what sets us apart as a company, at least in the Bay Area. I look, there's a few companies in LA and New York that I really admire for having a strong point of view too, and different than mine. But everyone has their unique take on style and what looks good. I've been building that my whole life. I think I really, it's not that I'm intentionally creating it. It's more that I'm pulling inspiration from everywhere all the time, like music and movies. And we're, I'm very influenced by pop culture and what's happening and trying to pull inspiration from a lot of different sources. And that's informed so much of my aesthetic, I think. And, you know, I could watch a movie and just, I wake up the next day and I'm like, I want to do, you know, like a 80s, den of music. And I don't know, I just get inspired by the small things in life. Traveling is a huge one. And I think that's informed my point of view. And I've just been kind of chipping away at that my whole life. And it's constantly changing. I mean, I was thinking about that today. I need to overhaul my house. I'm not feeling this vibe anymore. And, you know, just kind of staying open to that and staying open to inspiration from different places and keeping your eyes open and yeah. I mean, I've always been really drawn to 70s aesthetic and I grew up in Los Angeles and the whole Laurel Canyon thing and music. And that's always been a big part of who I am. And it's informed my style a lot. And I think you can see that in the staging, but we try to keep it elevated and it's just a work in progress. I'm constantly looking for new places to source from you know, just going to art shows, just staying really open and keeping my eyes open for what is happening in the world, I think has really helped. 
Yeah, I love that. And how do you usually approach your staging? Because every house is a little bit different, right? Even though yeah. in the same neighborhood, the architecture might be different or you know, totally. the vibe in the neighborhood might be different from one another. Yeah, I really try. And I, this is true for my design stuff to let the architecture dictate a lot. The way you feel in a space, I think for me at least, dictates what I want to do. I can walk into, like we just staged a mid-century house in the Berkeley Hills. And it was, immediately I walked in and I was I knew exactly what I wanted to do in that space. I wanted to make it a cool, just groovy with lots of texture and a record player and just really lean into that whole feel, you know, but still kind of have a little bit of this Japanese minimalist vibe happening. And so I walk into a space and I really feel like it speaks to me and I know sort of what to do. If it's more of a just generic house, I think having that strong point of view and having a really clear vision of what you like and what you want to create actually really informs the inventory that you're going to buy, right? I just gravitate towards certain things and it's my inventory now is very much a reflection of my own personal taste (laughs) for better, for worse. So you know, you can only do what you can do with the inventory that you have. But if it's just kind of a generic house, I think I just, again, styling one of, I build a story around who's going to buy this house. Who is the buyer? Who is the seller? How do we kind of meet a middle ground there? And how do we tell a story in the space that's going to feel interesting? So people feel drawn in. And I really want the spaces to feel like a place that they want to hang out. And it has nothing to do with selling. It's more just to, I want people to walk into the space and feel something. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Because I think most of the time buying is actually about feeling, isn't it? It's the mm-hmm. feel. And I think that yeah. very much comes from the styling side, probably from yeah. your training on photo shoots, because photo shoot is all about selling through yeah. feelings. We're, exactly. we're essentially building this dream. Pottery barn houses are really aspirational, right? Yeah. No one. Remember there was that one blog that was like Elaine and Gary or something. Yes. They, yeah. Life. And then the caption would be like, Elaine, I found yes. the perfect basket to put our navigational maps in it. No one really lives like that. Totally. Like in Paribon catalogs, yeah. but we strive to be, right? They're yeah. selling a dream. Remember in Friends, they bought this, what is it? Apothecary. Apothecary. <laughs> The whole side cable, right? It was all sponsored by Paribas. It was this dream that they, they're they totally. selling. Yeah, that's all it is. I mean, that's true. Of, you could say that about any industry, really. it's re- You're selling something, right? And it's, people have to feel an emotional response in order to feel, especially when you're making a big purchase like a home. I think having that emotion behind it is really helpful. And the staging is what sets the tone for that story which is, I think goes against maybe the more traditional idea of staging should be generic and it shouldn't tell a story. And that way the house itself can speak. But I actually think it served my business. And I think we're getting a response from people that actually know we, the story is actually selling the house. So that's one way to approach it, I guess. Yeah. No, I think the more traditional home staging training, they do train a more kind of I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it's, I think it's definitely more rigid, right? It's really treating the house as more like a generic object that we are doing very, it's all about like demographic and things like that. I mean, we teach that too, because it's really understand what your buyers are looking for and who they are. But I think it's really about what you said. It's about that story. What is the story that they want to buy into, right? That's exactly every single catalog, whether it's Ikea, Paribon, 
even Sherman Williams, you know, it's all about what do you want to buy into really? Absolutely. And knowing your audience, I think is really key, which I know you teach that. And that's just, you know, we, I try to think of that too. It's just like, who's the audience? Who's the buyer? Let's get into the mind of who those people are. And we've kind of baked that into the branding too. And a lot of the messaging that I think we're, we're trying to create is it's a very specific person. So I think sometimes we get clients who are wanting something that is very old school, but they're coming to us and it's a very different experience (laughs) than what they're used to. And so there definitely has been some growing pains with that. I think kind of informing the older school realtors. No, you don't have to do a generic living room. It can be cool and people can walk in and feel like inspired by it. And it's been an interesting conversation. Some people get it. Some people don't. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> I also think the maybe, yeah, but I also think time has changed. When yeah, I first totally. started staging in 2006, that was definitely people wanted a generic box. Mm-hmm. But yeah. now it's really more about curation. I mean, you look at millennials or Gen Z, you know, they really want that experience, which I think your company is really focusing on. It really, it really comes through your branding. I was on your website when I was prepping for the podcast. And you had the little video, right? Not little. You have a really nice yeah. video that, you know, essentially shows the experience that what happens when you come in and stage a house. There was not yeah. a single word in it. It was not about how big your warehouse was. It wasn't about how expensive your inventory was or your process or your stat. There's nothing. It was just music and photo of the home. Yeah. And I thought that was fantastic because I think it came across really elevated, it's sophisticated. And I think it really resonates, especially in the luxury market. The way they receive marketing is very different than the starter home market. Totally. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of where we landed. I mean, I think we started out with really small, really, really small houses and condos and stuff. And we still get those. But now we're starting to get the really big 5,000 square feet homes. And that's just been a natural evolution. It hasn't even been necessarily intentional. But I think because of the styling and then because of the way the branding and sort of just the way we're perceived, that's sort of naturally been the clientele that we've been leaning into a little bit more. So that's interesting. But again, we're still fighting against the old school way of luxury staging. And does everything have to be velvet? No, it can be, you know, like (laughs) there's other ways you can do things. I think it's kind of the rebel in me just feeling, no, we don't have to do it that way. We can do it a different way and just kind of experimenting with that and playing with that a little bit. Yeah. And I can't believe time has gone by so fast. I We're know. at the end of our show and I haven't even asked half of the questions. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a part two. We'll do a part two. <laughs> we'll do a part two. So before we leave, what is the number one tip you'll give to home stagers when it comes to starting and growing their home staging businesses? I would say, well, I have a few. I would say that the top two, I think is trust your vision, trust who you are as a person and lean into that a hundred percent. Don't try to do what everyone else is doing, but that just never works. It just never works. I think that there's too much competition. If everyone's trying to do the same thing, then there's no room for anything new. So I would say, trust your intuition, trust your vision, trust your style and try to lean into that as much as you possibly can. And the second tip, which has served me well throughout my whole career, styling and staging is to network. Network as much as you possibly can. And by networking, I don't mean going to events or doing any of that necessarily, but 
meeting as many people as you possibly can and talking to them about your business and just talking to them about what you do. And people are curious and people, I would say 90% of what we, what has happened with Paloma has been because of referrals or other people recommending or just the connections that happen when you talk to people and cast your net wide. And it doesn't have to be realtors, doesn't have to be other stagers necessarily. It can be your neighbor. It could be anybody really it could be the next step towards another client or another up leveling of your business. So those are just two things that have really served me really well, I think. And I know they're applicable to anybody really. Yeah. Amazing. Love it. Thank you so much for being on Thank the show you. today. Oh my gosh, City is so amazing talking to you and catching up. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging. Happy staging.